it, acknowledge it, and then we're good. I don't see, got it. That's okay. As long as you can see your screen, we're good. You can see your screen. So, hey, everyone, and welcome to Chef AJ Live. I'm your host, Chef AJ, and this is where I introduce you to amazing people like you who are doing great things in the world that I think you should know about. Well, my guest today, back by popular demand, is Dr. John Scharfenberg. He has been a professor of nutrition at Loma Linda University for over 63 years, and he is almost 100 years old. In fact, he's been on the show twice, and he has more views than anyone else on the show, probably combined over a half a million. If you've missed those episodes, I'll link to them below. Today, he's going to be doing a talk on diet, alcohol, and hardline drugs. Please welcome him to the show. It's very nice to see you again. You actually dressed up for me. <laughs> well, I have a tie on you, me. <laughs> <laughs> Most people don't wear a tie on the show. So that's, you wear a tie every day though, even, even when you're not working, right? Yeah. Wow, that's something. So, well, welcome back. Uh, you've become quite an internet celebrity. Other channels have heard about you, maybe through my channel and on Dog Bachelor's channel from uh, Amazing Facts. You've got close to a million views and yeah, you're just taking off. You're taking the internet by storm, Dr. Scharfenberg. Do you ever think you'd be such a sensational YouTuber in your late 90s? I think I'm getting better each time. <laughs> <laughs> well, you definitely deserve it. I think if you have the time, you should maybe start your own channel. You have so much wisdom to say. So today's topic, why are you interested in this topic? Well, because it has so much to do with something that happened way back, which predicted what's going to happen now. Which is? Dr. Register, UD Register, was a biochemist. He came to Loma Linda University about a year before I came there. And when he was in Wisconsin, he was working in a laboratory on the army rations, K rations, and he found there was something deficient in it. It happened to be vitamin B12. Another man of the same year found it too, and he got the credit for it. But registers had a very interesting thing about this B12 business. Uh, he really discovered it in 1948. That's the last vitamin we've discovered. But now he did some studies, which I want to tell you about what he did at Loma Linda. Uh, we have some slides here on it. I'm going to see, show you why animals sometimes become alcoholics and why they sometimes produce morphine in their body. So let's have that first slide. Absolutely. Let me just bring up the PowerPoint. And you, you've seen, just while I'm pulling it up, you have seen obesity increase in the last 100 years, haven't you? Yeah, right now, particularly, it's going up with the uh, children. Yeah. <clears throat> so let's get this. There we go. There we is. Diet, alcohol, and hardline drugs. Now, <clears throat> he was reading a book by a well-known lady author who wrote more than anybody else in the United States, Ellen White. And here's what she said in that book. It's a Ministry of Healing reference. Next slide. Many who would not be guilty of placing on their table wine or liquor of any kind will load their table with food, which creates such a thirst for strong drink that to resist the temptation is almost impossible. Wrong habits of eating and drinking destroy the health 
and prepare the way for drunkenness. Now, that was kind of interesting to Dr. Register scientifically. He said, is there any evidence for that? So he said, let's do an experiment and see. Let's try this out with rats. Let's take some rats and give them a good diet and then a, a junk food diet and see if it makes any difference regarding their wanting alcohol or that sort of thing. So the next slide now shows you the junk diet that he called the poor teenager's diet. Uh, he said, let's put some donuts and coffee for breakfast at 10 o'clock, some sweet rolls and coffee and lunch, hot dogs with mustard and pickle relish, soft drink, apple pie and coffee. Then at 3 p.m., a snack, sweet rolls and coffee. And then for dinner in the evening, spaghetti and meatballs, French bread, green bean, tossed salad, chocolate cake and more coffee. Then the evening snack, three filled cookies, a candy bar, and coffee. So he took these foods, blended them up in liquid, then dried it out. That's the junk food diet he was going to feed these rats. All right, now the next slide will show you the height of the line represents how much alcohol the rats drank. Now, rats don't usually drink alcohol. They know not to drink alcohol. Humans haven't learned that yet, but rats know not to drink alcohol. But when they put them on a good diet, it was a milk and vegetable diet considered good by the scientists. Uh, they didn't drink any alcohol. Now, the next slide shows you what happened when they were fed this junk food diet. They started right off drinking a little alcohol. And it was a 12-week study. <clears throat> but, but at the seventh week, they took off and became real alcoholic rats. Okay, now the next slide. <clears throat> they then they what they did was take these alcoholic rats and gave them more coffee and more irritating spices like pepper and stuff like that, and they became alcoholic quick right off the bat. <clears throat> and then they put them back on a good diet again. And they stopped drinking out, uh, alcohol and just drank water. So that was very interesting. Okay, the next slide. <clears throat> now, to make sure that we knew what was happening here, we, we paired these rats off and, and uh, checked the progeny. The progeny of the formerly alcoholic rats tend to like alcohol. So there's something affecting them, which is exciting. Next slide. <clears throat> now, we figured out what's happening biochemically. There's eight or nine essential amino acids. Phenylalanine is one of those. We have about 6% of that in, uh, in the amino acids in our diet, phenylalanine. Now that's converted to tyrosine, another amino acid. And that goes to make dopamine. Dopamine is something produced in the brain. Okay? And then that goes to make tetrahydropapaverolin, which is something we find in the poppy plant. That's an intermediate in the synthesis of opium. And Dr. Register tagged this with carbon-14. 50% of the carbon-14 
was found in the urine as morphine, codeine, or its precursors, normorphine and norcodeine. So it was producing morphine. Now, the next slide. Uh, so here it says phenylalanine makes up 5%. I said it was six. I don't know, it's five or 6% of the proteins, the foods we consume. Okay, now the next slide. Phenylalanine gets converted to tyrosine, tyrosine, and that goes to make dopamine. Okay, the next one. Now, the dopamine doesn't have to go down to make morphine. It can make uh, 3,4-dihydroxyphenylacetaldehyde, but that's toxic. So the body quickly converts it to the acid form, which is not toxic. Okay? But if you drink alcohol, it blocks that from happening. And then it goes down towards the morphine, making morphine. All right, now another slide to show you this, what's happening. Dopamine can help to produce 3,4-dihydroxyphenylacetaldehyde. This is a toxic substance, and the body quickly converts it to the acid form. All right, next slide. See what else could happen. But animals that drink alcohol block this reaction from happening. Okay, the next one. Now, it doesn't have to go to make that acid. It can make the basic building block of the body biochemically, which is acetyl coenzyme A. But it takes a lot of nutrients to do it. And on the junk food diet, there just wasn't good enough nutrition to do it. And so it goes down to make more morphine. All right, next slide. And so, they tag that carbon-14 tetrahydrofurfarolene to see what would happen. Next slide. And acetyl coenzyme A is okay, but it takes a lot of nutrition to go and make that. That's a basic building block of the body biochemically. All right, next. Let's go on to the next one. And the next one. So, when the diet was, of junk food diet was given to those rats, they formed this uh, morphine, codeine, normorphine, and norcodeine. So, on a junk food diet, if they didn't have a junk food diet, they could have gone to make acetyl coenzyme A rather than the morphine. All right, next. Now, when these alcoholic rats are injected with morphine, they no longer drink alcohol. They want just plain water. But the reason they were drinking the alcohol was when they made morphine in their body, they became dope addicts. And <clears throat> if they drank more alcohol, they would produce more opium. So we found out our line of reasoning was correct. They became dope addicts, and that's why they drank more alcohol. So we think this is probably applying to human beings too, but this was just on animals. Next slide. <clears throat> so for the first time, scientists have found a relationship between a poor diet, alcohol, and hardline drugs like morphine. 
In animal studies, this has been demonstrated. We haven't done it yet with humans, but it appears likely that this is also happening in a similar manner with humans. Okay, now that was years ago. When was it? Late 60s, 1968, 69. It wasn't published till about 1970, 1972. Okay, next slide. <clears throat> now, that was what happened years ago. What's happened now? It has been shown after reviewing 100 articles that humans produce opiates as a derivative of the digestion of excess sugars and fats. We need to figure out exactly what's happening there. There is good evidence that some obese binge eaters experience physical craving due to their bodies producing this opium. And so that's a physiological reason that the body craves uh, the sweet things that they're eating and is a problem. They're getting fat. So that's one reason for obesity is the body is producing opium in the body. Okay, the next slide. Now, there are antagonists to the opium. There are medicines on the market now. And I've given you the names of three of them here. These medicines will keep you from making the opium. They're antagonistic to the opium. And if you get these medicines, if obese people get these medicines, some of them, it will knock all their desire to eat all those sweet things they've been eating. It's kind of exciting. So there's a group of people that are addicted to morphine that's making them get fat because it makes them addicted to certain foods. Next slide. So here's what Dr. Register's animal study showed. It showed a junk food diet increased the consumption of alcohol and opiate production. He showed coffee increased the production of opiates in the body. Coffee increased the rat's alcohol consumption. Spicy foods increased alcohol consumption and opiate production. production. Sweets increased both of the substances also. So that's what we found out from the animal study in the late 1960s. Now, more recently, what's happened? Next slide. <clears throat> Coffee increases dopamine production, we found out, increases it 250%. The dopamine is produced in the brain. Rats in acute opiate withdrawal have increased craving for sweets. And that's what's happening with obese people. Oftentimes, sweets have analgesic effect because of the increased production of opiates. Now, with this opiate antagonist, weight gain decreases as the desire of the sweet food is decreased. So that's kind of exciting. We found out how, from the animal studies, how a human being, if he eats this junk food diet, he will produce opium, makes him want to drink alcohol, so more opium can be produced. He's an opiate addict. If you give them an opiate blocker, they no longer uh, uh, eat those bad, all those bad things. 
So we need now to find out how to control weight in these kind of people. There are some obese people who are obese because they're physiologically addicted. Is there any more slides or is this it? That is it. That's it. Okay. Now, let me tell you uh, uh, currently about some of this. There are different new drugs now to help these people. Uh, we know there's several organs involved. One is the hypothalamus. And we know that the uh, pancreas is important. And we know that the production of opium is important. So there's different reasons for people to be for people to be obese. And we need to find out with different kinds of people what is the reason. Uh, now, these new drugs are expensive. They figured it'll cost $1,500 a year to use these new drugs. Uh, but there are drugs that are really working on the pancreas to make the pancreas produce more uh, insulin to control the blood sugar properly, okay? So they, it's beating, the, the cost of it is expensive and the insurance company doesn't pay for it. So these are some of our problems with the new drugs that they're experimenting with. Now, a little bit more on, on the, some of these drugs. We know that many people are controlled more by the clock, externals than by internals. Uh, obese people are controlled more by the clock. So if you put people who are obese and normal weight people in a room where the clocks are going one hour too fast or one hour too slow, the obese people, when it says it's 12 o'clock and they're used to eating lunch at 12, they're hungry. They say they got to eat. A normal weight person doesn't do that. He's controlled by what his stomach feels like. So the overweight person, though, he's controlled by external. So we have to use behavioral change techniques to help these people to control their appetite. For example, if a man walks to work, past the donut shop. The donut calls out at him, says, hey, you always come here and get your donut. It's ready. Come on in and get it. And you go in and get the donut. So you have to plan a different way of walking to work so you don't go by the donut shop or don't have any change in your pocket to put in the slot machine to get anything. Uh, those are behavioral change techniques. We make about 400 decisions on what we eat every day. And we do it without even thinking. And so overweight people get caught up in this. A man goes to work, he comes home, he sits in a nice soft sofa in front of the TV, right next to the kitchen, by the way. And he used to eating peanuts there. And so what does he do? The peanuts in the kitchen call out, hey, your peanuts are ready. So he gets up from his sofa, goes into the kitchen, gets his peanuts and starts munching on the peanuts. Now, that kind of a person, he has to change where he's sitting at the table, change the room around. So he knows things are different. It's going to be different now. And he doesn't let those things affect him. Uh, but there are a lot of those things that are, 
that he has to do differently to, to change his habits. But there's this group that's making opium. We need to find out how they're making it, why they're making it, and how to change that so they don't get overweight. You can use these uh, opium antagonists to start with, but all these kinds of things are expensive and the insurance company doesn't pay for it. So uh, we need more research right now on how these things are affecting the body. But it looks like junk food diet is bad. Bad for the rats, it's bad for the humans. It looks like coffee is not good. It looks like uh, other caffeinated products are not good. Helps to produce this kind of thing. So we have different kinds of obesity. We're beginning to divide them up. For example, if something is affecting the hypothalamus, that's where the dopamine is made. Coffee increases the dopamine production makes you want to make or more of that opium. So we have to know if that is their cause of obesity. There's the Cushing's disease. That means the hypothyroidism. That is affecting obesity also. And we need to uh, give the, those people the right thyroid. So the thyroid is working properly. And then there's this, these medicines now used to produce Produce insulin at the right time. Works on the pancreas. Now, I hate to use those kind of medicines. I can see to make dietary changes would be good if that will work. But to take all these pills that are so expensive, and there's always usually side effects. And you can't get insurance paid for it. And usually the malpractice insurance is higher for the doctors who are giving you medicines treating you for obesity. Now, are there any questions anybody has about this? Well, I actually, I'm going to look in the chat in a minute, Dr. Scharfenberg, but I actually took a few notes and I actually have a few questions based on some of the things you said. If I understand you correctly, at least with the rats, they didn't struggle until it was the ones, they were on, they were addicted to these substances on purpose. They weren't like seeking them out in nature. There, there, there is no alcohol or drugs for rats in nature or chocolate. That's right. Yeah, That's and so they didn't have this predilection in to begin with. It, it was given to them, and, and then their then it was their offspring who suffered. That's correct. So could we maybe make a case that that could be what's going on with people? That people that are addicted to junk food and processed food and eat that primarily as their sole source of calories then produce offspring offspring with the same predilections. I, I think that's right. Yeah. I think that's right. Yeah, because uh, because you remember this, this these these foods didn't always exist throughout human history. No, no, that's right. Uh, but there is a lot of junk food around now, a lot, a lot of junk food. Well, when you gave that list of what they gave the rats, that looks like what people I know eat. <laughs> that's right. That's right. A lot of people are eating too much junk, see? And, and what they're saying is excess sugar, sweets, and it's excess uh, irritating spices, pepper. Uh, that is causing this problem. Uh, coffee did it, and so on. So I think if we work on this a little more, we'll find out more foods that are causing the problem. And then maybe we can figure out how the right kind of a program would be good for a certain group 
of obese people. They're not obese for the same reason. But if they weren't eating these foods, I, I mean, people are going to vary genetically in, in their weight. There's, there's going to be slimmer people and there's going to be heavier people. I understand that. But if people weren't eating these foods, would anyone really just become obese eating the kind of diet that the, the Adventists recommend or at True North, a diet that is whole food plant exclusive without you know sugars and oils and salt and things like that and without alcohol? I mean, could someone become obese if they were eating the diet that Dr. Goldhammer served them at True North? Yeah. Well, you know, I was down in Miami. Miami is the opium capital of the United States. They're selling the drugs right out on the street. So there's a lot of rehabilitation centers for those kind of people. I went into the rehabilitation centers to see what they're feeding them. They were giving them lots of coffee. Well, according to the rat studies and even human studies now, we know that increases the production of the dopamine, which is on the pathway to developing the opiates. So I said, this shouldn't be done. You should change in your rehabilitation program. You should get rid of the coffee. I think the coffee and the sweets we know for sure. Irritating spices we know cause the problem. Pepper. Uh, there are spices that are helpful and we need to find out which ones are good and which ones are bad. And I think we can do that. Uh, you know, there, um, I for the past five years, I've hosted an annual summit called The Truth About Weight Loss and a wonderful plant-based physician named Dr. Linda Carney actually gave a talk about 17 reasons caffeine makes you gain weight. And I appreciate you saying that because so many doctors, including plant-based doctors, think of coffee as benign. Many of them don't don't like it like Dr. Goldhammer, but the people I know that drink coffee, they always seem to be craving sweets later in the day. Even yes. if they have a donut with their coffee in the morning, they're always looking later in the day. And it's such an addictive substance. It's very hard for people to quit once they start. And the sweets, by the way, seem to be analgesic, seems to help to pain control, you know, analgesic. And so we need to do a lot of research right now because we have all these different causes of the obesity, different kinds of reasons why people are obese. Some just overeating. Some uh, need the behavioral change technique. Some it's they're producing opium because of too much uh, sugar, too much coffee, too many things like that in their body. So there's different reasons. Cushing disease, lack of uh, thyroid, the hypothyroid problem. Uh, and these medicines now that, that are working on the pancreas, I'm a little scared of those because most all these medicines have side effects. And if you artificially try to uh, get that pancreas to squirt out more insulin to help all these problems, I think you're going to get into problems. How have you seen the food changed since, let's see, if you're, you're going to be 100 this year, which means you were born in... What 1923. <laughs> 19, yeah, I, I should be able to do easy math like that. But how have you seen the food system change and the food supply change? Like what kind of things did you eat growing up, for example? Well, you know, I grew up in the mission field out in China and you didn't have a drugstore on every corner or a little grocery store or a place to get a bottle of alcohol on every corner. Now, now people have access to alcohol everywhere. People have access to all these sweets, candy bars everywhere. So I think that's one of our problems, access. 
people have access to this so much easier than when I was growing up. You didn't have access to those things. Did they even exist as you were growing up, though? Well, you had candy bars, for example. But we, we were brought up and taught not to eat all those candy bars. So, so we didn't have those. Uh, but we didn't have access to it like people do today. Yeah. Do you think the processed food industry knew they were creating a, a, an addictive product on purpose? No, I don't think they were doing it on purpose. I think they were doing it because of salt. They got money. <laughs> it was sweet. People liked it and they got money from it. So they pushed it. So but, they just they just got lucky that these foods happened to be addictive for a, a, a large segment of the population. Yes. <laughs> so they're, they're really got it. To be dope addicts, a bunch of them, that nobody thought this would happen. I don't know if you're familiar with Dr. Kathleen de Maison. She wrote a book called Potatoes, Not Prozac, but she used to work with uh, groups with alcoholics. And she noticed that when they were coming off alcohol, all they did was eat sugar. Yes. Yes. So, so there's a problem here with all the sugar stuff. Now, uh, I, I've been pushing this idea of the right kind of diet and avoiding seven risk factors to decrease your heart attack and stroke risk 80%, your diabetes risk 88%. Now, we've done very well in this country in dropping our uh, incidence of heart disease and strokes primarily because of stopping smoking. We've knocked our smoking down great. Only 11% of the adults, adults are still smoking. And in California, where a few more smart people live, <laughs> it's only 9%. So that's pretty good. Uh, but there are some things that are continuing. That, so the rate is not dropping in heart disease stroke as well as it should. For example, just in the last couple of years, diabetes risk has increased about 75%. We're getting more diabetics. And I don't know if you realize it, but women that are put on these statin drugs to lower their blood cholesterol have 71% increase in their chance of getting diabetes. So that's not good. Oh, and I don't think all these women should be on these drugs. We've done studies just on women. Two out of the three studies showed the people who took those drugs to lower their blood cholesterol died sooner than the people who didn't take them. So there's some problems with those drugs. I don't think women should be on those statin drugs, okay? And of the other people, they've found that actually for 93% of the people on those drugs to lower their cholesterol, it didn't do any good whatsoever in longevity. 7% it did, but for 93% it didn't. We don't know who has atherosclerosis who doesn't. We've been going by cholesterol level. But now we've found out that we're just avoiding seven lifestyle factors. We can knock our cardiovascular disease, heart attack and stroke, 80%. Diabetes, 88%. So we, we should treat people that way, prevent the disease that way, rather than giving them pills, which doesn't help a lot of people. Uh, now, the three things that have not gone down that are keeping the cardiovascular disease rate still up 
is diabetes, hypertension, and overweight. Okay, now the diabetes, we know what to do to knock that. If a person is vegetarian, why do I say vegetarian? Because the people who are not vegetarians have 3.6 times greater risk of diabetes being on their death certificate. Okay, so non-vegetarians are much more apt to get diabetes. Uh, overweight, hypertension, all these are interrelated. Uh, usually the diabetic is diagnosed with hypertension about seven years before he's diagnosed with having diabetes. And most of them are overweight. So these are the kind of problems we have with the diabetes. So we know if the diabetic exercises every day, keeps his weight down, is a vegetarian, he has very little chance of getting diabetes. Oh, the first place. Now, hypertension. Hypertension is a problem. Overweight increases that. Diabetes increases the risk. So all these are interrelated. Exercise is the best prevented for hypertension. So what are we gonna do about it? We gotta get people exercising. But our problem is when a doctor tells somebody to exercise, how many of them will do it? Hardly Not anybody. Very. Not very many. It seems like that's even harder sometimes than they get to people to eat healthfully. That's right. That's right. It's very difficult to get people to exercise or even to eat healthfully. It's hard to get people to do what we know they should do. There are many people know what they should do and they don't do it. So our next breakthrough in healthcare is going to be in getting people to do what we know they should do and they know they should do it. So now the weight thing is another big thing and particularly in children that the weight increase has been going up with children. We were the fattest country in the world until just recently, uh, Mexico beat us. They're a little bit ahead of us. Uh, but about 40% of our people are overweight. If you are overweight, you have eight times greater risk of getting diabetes. If you are obese, you have 20 times greater risk of getting diabetes. So these are things we got to do something about. Now, for blood pressure, they all revolve around vegetarian diet too. All revolve revolve around that. Vegetarians less likely to have diabetes on their death certificate. Hypertension is best prevented by exercise. Uh, overweight exercise is important in keeping their weight down. So all these things are interrelated and vegetarians related to all three. But my main goal is to try to get more people to be vegetarians. Uh, only about six to 15% of Americans are on the vegetarian diet. How do we persuade them to do more in that regard? I think we've got to give them the reasons why. Now, in, nine, in 2015, there was a group of doctors that examined the American diet and made recommendations to the Department of Health and Department of Agriculture. They said the vegetarian diet is an optimum diet. But when it got to the top of each department, top men, 
they eliminated all meat from their recommendation, even lean meat. But when it got to the top people in the department, they included lean meat in the, in the ideal diet, which the doctors didn't recommend at all. So doctors know, the top doctors know, the vegetarian diet is a good diet. And I think we should get kids to present this. You know, if an adult says something, you, you tend to argue with him. But kids say it, you won't want to help the kids, you don't argue with them very much. But a lot of kids, I, I think we can make them good health educators. We can make them the ones to go out and tell people, just five reasons why you shouldn't smoke. You don't have to have an MD or PhD to do it. Just go out there and tell people, these are the five reasons why you shouldn't smoke. We can take nutrition and divide it up in different ways like this too. Now this idea of eating but two meals a day, skipping the evening meal, it helps sleep apnea. It helps weight control. It helps the metabolic cycle so the blood sugar doesn't jump up and down so much. It's very useful. It's begin to be taught in the United States. There was some dietitian down in Alabama who suggested this and uh, Advents have taught that for years and years too, that it's a good idea to be on two meals a day. And for one time, one uh, period of time, almost all Advents were on two meals a day. But now uh, most of them have slipped back on it. A few now are coming back to the idea of two meals a day. The New START program at Weimar, for example, they are now putting that into their program. Put people on two meals a day, uh, help them in having a best possible diet, but not many places are they doing that. Does it have to be breakfast and lunch or can it still be effective if it's lunch and a light early dinner? Because it's very <laughs> for people with families and work to, to you know, to, to share meals. Well, the last meal is in the afternoon. Well, they haven't done enough studies on this to really know that, but uh, we, th we think it's earlier or better. And this lady says you shouldn't eat anything after 2 p.m. <laughs> That's the dietitian. You know, you mentioned a vegetarian diet, but a vegetarian diet doesn't necessarily mean a healthy diet because you can still have all kinds of vegetarian or vegan junk food. That's right. And I, well, it's likely that many of these people, when they become vegetarian, they go to sweets. And that's wrong. Yeah. You know, you mentioned two drugs, naloxone and naltrexone. And yes. I remember hearing about a study, and I believe it was with naloxone. Those are drugs that are often administered in the emergency room, right? If somebody were to have, like, say, what could be a fatal heroin overdose, is that correct? That's right. That's exactly right. Because I think it, it blocks the blood-brain barrier. It makes the yeah, drugs right. ineffective. So I remember, and I wish I could find the study, and if anybody knows where I can in the medical literature, please let me know, helpatchefaj.com, because I'd love to read it. But the way I remember hearing about it is they gave a, a group of self-professed chocoholics naloxone, and then they unleashed them on a buffet of chocolate, and they went up to whatever their favorite thing was and took a bite, and they lo no longer had any interest in it. That's right. They've done studies like that. Yes, I, I have the name of one of those studies. Let's see. I, I would love to read it because, I mean, because then, but that's not the answer, right? We can't all just take naloxone or naltrexone just so that we can avoid these hyperpalatable foods, or, or can we? Yes. I mean, I, 
Is yeah. that, are drugs the answer? I guess what I'm saying. Here, here's the study. Uh, a fellow by the name of Junoski, D-R-E-W-N-O-S-K-I. He did a laboratory experiment in which two groups of students were invited to an event in which candy, cookies, and other sweets, foods high in sugar and fat were readily available. After determining the average eating patterns and quantities for a group of students, the same food was placed out again. But this time, the one group was given this naloxone, the opiate antagonist. This group almost completely lost interest in the food. The control group, not given the opiate blocker, continued to eat sugar, flour, and fat foods just as before. Uh, so we have a whole system explaining food addiction or alterations in the biochemistry of the brain's pleasure center, most specifically in the dopamine receptor areas of, of the brain. So That's they've done studies like that. Right, but 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 our, what I'm saying, are doctors putting patients that maybe struggle with weight or food addiction on these drugs long-term? I mean, what are the long-term consequences of naloxone and naltrexone? Yeah, see, that's what we don't know. And that's dangerous. So, so uh, but anyway, it shows there is a group that's making opium in their body. And we need to find out how to decrease that production of opium. How do we determine who this population is? Is is it everyone that struggles with excess weight, or are there people maybe that? No, it's only only some of them. See, and and I think to do this naloxone test, you could determine who is having that problem and who isn't. Wow, it sounds like quite <laughs> quite an ordeal, and that there's lots of research ahead of us. Yes, there is. What do you think of that new weight loss drug, Ozempic, that so many people are rushing to take? That's, I'm told it's very, very expensive. That's the, that, yeah. Those kind of things are the ones that are, they work on some on the hypothalamus. They make you lose your, or have satiety because they delay the emptying of the stomach, but they work on the pancreas also, producing more uh, insulin. You see overweight people are, like diabetics in many respects. That drug you mentioned is used for diabetes, but it's used for overweight because they're insulin resistant. And so if you can get more insulin produced that can be utilizable, then that would be helpful. And that's what that does. But the insurance company doesn't pay for it. Cost you maybe $1,500 a year to get those medications. So. It, it's a problem. It helps to determine. I think it's good for a test to try to figure out who is what kind of a obese problem, what their problem is, to use some of these things, but not to use it regular. Yeah. Well, here's an interesting question from a live viewer named Ronnie saying, well, could we just ask our regular doctor for these drugs, even in the short term to just get off dopamine? I don't think um, he or she means getting off dopamine, but just maybe to decrease the cravings for the foods that well, are using the dopamine. The food, the, 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 food uh, the price of these drugs is so expensive that now it's only the wealthy people that are on it. It's only the wealthy who can afford $1,500 a year for this kind of stuff. So it's only the wealthy right now that are doing it. Yeah. 
How do you feel about gastric bypass surgery as a, as a cure? Well, you know, even after the bypass surgery, eventually you have to learn how to eat, eventually. So it's just, it doesn't really take care of the problem because you have to learn how to eat later on. Just temporarily, this will help you to lose weight right now. Did you ever struggle with weight or has anyone in your family ever struggled with it? And my mother was a little overweight sometimes, not much, uh, but we didn't have it in our family life. Now, my wife's brothers all were overweight and they all had diabetes, except the one boy that was not overweight. And my wife, when she was young, she was a little punk one time in grade school. She heard her teacher remark that she's going to end up. And so she made up her mind. She would never get to that situation. And she kept herself thin from then on. Uh, so she never got that way. But her brothers, all of them, had prostate cancer, except the one that kept his weight down. Uh, they're all overweight. They all had diabetes. I diagnosed one as diabetes that he didn't know he was. Uh, so they were all diabetic, all had prostate cancer uh, because of weight. But my wife determined not to get her weight, so she didn't have the problem. Nice. Speaking of uh, eating, one of the live viewers is asking, what do you yourself eat? And is there a certain foods that you've eaten a lot of over the last 99 and a half years? Well, let me tell you what really has helped me a lot. I've been on the two meal a day plan. <laughs> I only eat twice a day. I eat early in the morning, then at, at noon or one o'clock. Uh, so th that's helped me keep my weight down. And I believe that in my weight control programs that I did, I did three other principles first. I'd say first, don't eat between meals. Two thirds of women who are overweight, if they stopped eating between meals, they wouldn't be overweight. So a lot of them just have to do that one thing. Uh, but if they have a hard time with their weight, uh, getting it down, doing going on two meals a day program usually works. All the people have a hard time. Usually that works. So I had only four principles when I started out. Number one is don't eat between meals. No snacks. Number two, cut down on foods that empty calories. No vitamins or minerals, hardly in it sugar and that kind of stuff. And number three principle was cut down on saturated fat. And the fourth principle, if none of those work, fourth principle was going two meals a day. That was the program I, I usually put people on. Yeah. And if they were having trouble getting their weight down, the two meal a day program seemed to work. Yeah. Many of us here watching, like my Self and my friend Karen, we do two meals a day, but we do lunch at noon and dinner and dinner at five. Now, and we do know that people who work at night die sooner. You wow. know, the, the, so there's something that's not good about that. Uh, so we haven't had enough studies of that type. 
to show if there's a difference of when the two meals are. But I would imagine if what you say is true about what we call intermittent fasting, limiting the feeding window, you that you could maybe argue that eating two meals at lunch and dinner is still better than eating three. Yeah, 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 you could. But I'd like to see studies done on it. Yeah, study. I just feel like it's going to be unrealistic for most people, whereas it's pretty easy to skip breakfast. You go exercise, you take a walk and noon is there before you know it. But yeah. and I don't know how you get through those. It's not that I'm even hungry at night. It's just that, you know, I want to be with my family and they're all there's no way to do that except it. I know a lot of it's a matter of habit, yeah. whichever way it goes. It's a matter of habit. Yeah, well, you know, my 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 personal physician, who's also an Adventist, you know her. I mean, she's just a big fan of no dinner. You know, <laughs> just yeah. always saying you got to try it. And I'm like, well, <laughs> sound that great to me. So, are there certain foods that have been a hallmark of your existence that you've always included, like greens or beans or rice or potatoes or sweet potatoes, fruit? Well, or- I'll, I'll tell you, we never ate fresh greens in China because they use human manure to uh, put on their greens, <laughs> to grow the greens. And you got amoeba that way. And you died from the amoeba. So we never did that. If we ate any green, it had to be cooked in China. Uh, but I came to the United States and I saw all these people eating salads. And I discovered that those who did eat the salads had a lot lower death rate than those who didn't. So daily salads are good. So I started eating more salads, more greens. It's it's good. Uh, but the things that I ate a lot in in uh, China growing up was rice. I was a great ice, rice eater. Uh, and I argued with myself, do I like potatoes better or rice better? <laughs> For a long time, I said it's rice. But I'm back to potatoes, thinking it's potatoes. But potato has a problem, has a high glycemic index. Right, but you're not generally eating a potato by itself. You're eating it as part of a meal. So wouldn't the glycemic load change? Because I don't just eat a potato. I eat it with any other things like, you know, vegetables or beans or something like that. Potato has a glycemic index by itself, white potato, of about like ice cream. (laughs) But it changes numbers by what else is in the meal. It changes numbers by how the potato is prepared. All that makes a difference. Now, for example, we should have uh, twice as much potassium in our diet as sodium, and we got to turn it around. We got twice as much sodium as potassium. Most people eat potatoes that are peeled, and you're knocking off all the potassium, (laughs) which is what we really need. There are some restaurants where you can uh, go and get a whole dish of, of potato peelings. <laughs> I don't know if you've seen that. It just give you potato peelings. Have you seen that in restaurants? No. No, but there are places that do that. Wow. You eat a plate full of potato peelings. <laughs> oh, just the peel with that. Yeah, they probably deep fry them with oil and use a lot of salt. I know, I know. <laughs> but anyway, if you're peeling potatoes, you're losing a lot of the potassium. So we change our whole sodium potassium ratio when we do that. Uh, so, and if you get fiber, if you get fiber, you don't get hypertension. 
For example, if you eat 12 grams of fiber a day compared to somebody who's eating uh, 24 grams a day, you have a 57% higher risk of uh, getting hypertension. Uh, so fiber is important. Linoleic acid is important. Eating the foods that have linoleic acid, most plant foods have it, that have fat in it, it's linoleic acid. That helps to keep rats from ever getting hypertension. Uh, potassium helps you. You can feed rats so much potassium that no malasalt will do them any harm. But uh, they've got to have lots of potassium. Now, it's crazy on the rat studies. Rat normally doesn't eat what the experimental person doing rat studies uses for rats. They're giving them seven to 10 times more salt in their diet than they would eat normally if they had to pick their own diet. So what do their results mean? I don't think they mean anything. <laughs> yeah, well, just, just, to, just to preface this, that I, I'm an ethical vegan, first and foremost, I've been vegan for 46 years. So I'm really against animal studies across the board. Yes. However, when it's already been done, I am willing to let people discuss the results because I feel they're helpful to people. But I'm curious when they try to addict the rats to drugs or alcohol, is that all that's being offered or is there natural healthy food that's consistent with their species natural history being offered? Do you know what I'm saying? Because if, if, if we were dropped on a desert island and all they gave us was chicken nuggets, we would eat it to survive. But with the rats, are they also offering healthy food and they're choosing the unhealthy food over the healthy food? Do you see, do you understand the difference in what I'm saying? Well, see, they have a standard high salt diet for all rat studies, which is not right because they're giving them seven times more salt than they ordinarily would pick if they were choosing their own diet. Uh, so now you should know that the Cancer Society doesn't use any rat study for any of their decisions. It has to be human studies. So they don't go by rat studies, no animal study. They have to do more. There's too many steps between animal and human. So they use only human studies to decide what they'd recommend to us. Well, I have seen people just when they cut out all salt and don't eat processed food, even if they're not vegan, lose tremendous amounts of weight because I have found that for most people, salt is a very powerful appetite stimulant and causes them to just eat more of whatever. Yes. And of course, with high blood pressure, I think, you know, calcium in, in our diet, for example, if you, uh, cut your salt in half, you excrete less calcium. You reabsorb more calcium. It's like taking a 900 milligram tablet of calcium every day if you cut your salt intake in half. So we need to cut our salt down. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and they have it in so many foods. It's in every processed food, I believe. Every processed food they add salt. Yes, they do. For example, I was on my breakfast cereal, dry breakfast cereal. I wouldn't take it if it had more than five grams of sugar in it every serving, see? And, but I found out I, I like something called cherry oats. <laughs> and it was low in sugar, but they added salt. The salt was high. 
<laughs> wow. That's something. So when you grew up in China, was the rice you ate for all those years white rice, which gets vilified today? Uh, we, we ate rice, white rice, yeah. Now, when I got married, my wife knew better. And so she had to switch me to brown. Now, how'd she do it? Well, she put in 10% brown and 90% white. When I got used to that, she put in 20% brown and 80% white. <laughs> Until she got me on brown rice by itself. <laughs> so I can say today, I can't say I don't like white rice. I still like it, but I, I'm used to brown rice now, too. That's fantastic. So is the, is the problem in the coffee and tea, the caffeine, because somebody's asking, well, what about matcha green tea? But my understanding is that has just as can have just as much caffeine. Yeah, I think it's more than caffeine that's a problem. We have, we have theobromine, for example. We have other things. So the cancer researchers that were looking to see if coffee was causing cancer, they started doing the studies with decaffeinated coffee to see if it was only the caffeine. And they seemed to be other things that were problems, not just the caffeine. That makes sense. And as an Adventist, those are things that in general, don't most Adventists just avoid caffeine, alcohol, tobacco, and hardline drugs? Well, they avoid tobacco. We do the best on that. And alcohol, next best on that. Coffee, I asked Gary Fraser, who does all the Adventist health studies from Loma Linda. He's now retired back in Australia. Uh, but Gary Fraser, I said, why don't you do more studies on Adventists and coffee? He says, we don't have enough drinking coffee to do good studies. Really? I, would almost, I thought almost everybody drinks, drink coffee. I, I mean, he's talking about Adventist group, see? And he said, we only had about 8% of the Adventists that were drinking coffee. I said, Gary... Oh, in the Adventist community, but yes. in the general world population, most right, people drink right. coffee. Yeah, got it. So I said I was at to a very conservative Adventist church in Phoenix, Arizona. And I did a study. 40% of the Adventists were using coffee. Wow. And I said, the difference, Gary, is I don't make them put their name on the paper like you do. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> so, so there are quite a few Adventists still using coffee in this in this country. They might not use it very often, you know. They might use it just occasionally or something, but but there, quite a few still use it. Were you part of the original Adventist Health Study? Yes, yes, I was. Uh, I mean, the Gary Fraser did some very good things. Now, he went over to England, studied in Oxford of how to present things in a, in a way that's be more interesting. For example, the percent of people who live to be 85 or older. He got that idea from his study at Oxford. He went there to learn good statistical methods to present it to people in a way that they would understand it easy. And this is interesting that, that uh, the Adventist vegetarians, uh, the men, 
48.6% of them who are vegetarian live to be 85 or older, and general population is only 19.5%. Big difference, but that's a nice way to present it. You know, you talked about these drugs like naloxone and naltrexone that block, they, they, when people take them, they're not interested in eating the junk food, yeah. but are there drugs that could increase dopamine in a person's brain so they don't seek the food in the first place? Because isn't that why they're using the drugs and the alcohol? Yes. And, and I like to see, well, they're making opium. They became addicts. So that's why they're using it. But I'd like to see it. We know that the coffee increases the dopamine production 250%. You see, so that your coffee doesn't do it, do any good. No, on that regard. Wait, so, coffee increases dopamine production 250%. You have a study on that? Yeah, yeah. I I just picked it up in the literature. I don't remember where it was. But, uh, That's but incredible. They're, they're beginning to study that more and more because of this uh, opiate antagonist be, being so good to identify a certain group of people that are overweight. And so they're beginning to study it now more and more. And we need to, even more studies, we need to find out more about it, what it is that makes the dopamine increase. Wow. Is, is there anything people can do naturally, like exercise or have sex or other, other things they can do besides drugs and food? Well, that, that's what we got to figure out. That, that, they're just into the studies now. They're just getting onto studying a lot of this stuff. It's but we don't have the answers yet. Don't you think it's kind of late? Maybe they should have started a little sooner. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what have you got planned for you? I hope you'll come back on December 15th on your 100th birthday. You can talk about anything you like. And what have you got planned for the rest of the year? Are you? I know you're giving presentations. And are, is there a way people can find out where? Well, I gave one at Weimar uh, last weekend. And I went for about two hours. That <laughs> went a long time. But the interest was very great. Interest was good. That's great. Well, I think you should have your own YouTube channel. Well, I'm getting too old to, to worry about doing. Now, if I was younger, I'd do that. <laughs> yeah. So, so somebody's arguing that moderate alcohol consumption can reduce your risk of developing and dying of heart disease and stroke, and possibly your risk of diabetes. What do you say about that? That's not true. It's just scientifically, it's not true. We, we know there's no group medically that recommends alcohol for any reason whatsoever. Amen, doctor. <laughs> yeah, people want good news about their bad habits. Well, this is, let's see, here's a, here's a, a comment from a live viewer named Callista. I'm 56 years old and I want to start whole food plant-based, no oil. What do you suggest for someone starting out? Well, I think you should make changes gradually, number one. And in other words, I wouldn't go all hog just on that point. I would do it one day a week. And after three months or so, two days a week, and do it that way. Because your body is, uh, gets a while to get adjusted to a new program. So I, I would make my changes gradually. 
That's great. Well, it's never too late because I've had people in my programs that were 90 years old that were able to still make changes and improve yeah. the quality of their life. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, you have a wonderful quality of life. I'm very impressed with uh, you and I really appreciate you coming on the show. It's been a pleasure knowing you. It is a pleasure knowing you, not Ben. And, uh, I, and please feel free to come on anytime. Yes, I'm excited really about this method of getting across to people. I know, isn't I've it great? A, Whoever thought in 1923 that you'd be a celebrity on a on a internet? You know, who, there wasn't yeah. even an internet back then. In these in these big uh, these three studies I've had on Zoom and this kind of thing, YouTube, I've had over two million hits. That's why I say start your own channel, Doc. Why not? Shar well, call it Scharfenberg Speaks: A Hundred Years of Wisdom. But I think I think it's important for me to get the most important things together in a concise way that people can get the message. Yeah. Well, maybe it's time to write a book. <laughs> yeah. Well, but, thank but you. But I'm excited about, you know, only 60, 15% of Americans are vegetarians. Not many, very many are. And the evidence is so strong in favor of it. We've got to show people how reasonable it is. Show them how easy it is to do and the advantages of it. Uh, but I'm surprised that more people haven't done this. Well, I think that part of it, it has to do with the social norms, but also that uh, I find that many people do suffer from food addiction and that they if that doesn't include it in the diet, then they're not that interested, you know? No, I yeah. mean, people that drink alcohol, coffee, eat junk food, they, they don't want to be told not to do that. People are not looking for bad news about their bad habits. As Dr. McDougall says, they're looking for good news about their bad habits. Yes. And, you know, a lot of doctors don't even believe it. I, I don't know if food addiction is the best term. We call it whatever you want, but a lot of doctors, and I've had them on the show, and I don't ever want to argue with them, but they don't even believe in it. Yes. They say it's not the same because there's no detox. There's no, people don't die from it. Maybe they don't die quickly like they would from a heroin overdose. They don't from a Twinkie overdose, but I think they die slowly and insidiously developing these lifestyle diseases. And they certainly don't feel good mentally and emotionally when they are always having cravings for these foods and they can't stop the compulsive eating. I think we should be able to live to be maybe 120 Three different methods I checked out, and I thought it would be possible. Each one came out to about the same number, 120 years. I think we should be able to live a lot longer than we do. Right. Well, maybe you'll come on every year until you're 120. <laughs> if I should live as long as you. <laughs> All right. What have, you got, what have you got planned for the weekend? Anything special? Uh <clears throat> Well, I'm not sure of anything real special. You know, I've been trying to find out where I could get something good to eat, vegetarian-wise. Yeah. It's hard. It's hard. Without doing it in your own kitchen, it's hard. Well, do you know, there's a bunch of restaurants here in, in the area. We live not too far from each other. Uh, there's... Uh, Are these Chinese restaurants or... Yeah, yeah or faux vegan. Vietnam? 
faux vegan. I think you'll like it. Actually, we're having our dinner there tonight and it's, they, they have a regular vegan menu and they have an oil-free, salt-free vegan menu. I get something called the Tammy special. It's, it's absolutely delicious. So I uh, to try I'd be happy to take you there one day and we can go for lunch since I know you don't uh, choose to eat dinner, but I find it it's fantastic. And it's over brown rice and it's got all kinds of ve- fresh vegetables and it's got a garlic sauce, but they don't use, you know, oil in it. And it's quite delicious. Mm-hmm. Love to take you there. Good. Free advertising for you, Julie, from for Faux Vegan. She hasn't been on the show yet. It's it's in Rockland. So when I get back, I'm going to Mexico tomorrow to teach cooking for eight days. When I get back, I'd love to take you to lunch. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Dr. Scharfenberg. It's always great catching up with you. Okay. And thanks all of you for watching another episode of Chef AJ Live. Please come back tomorrow when my guest is Ava Loves Raw, how she healed herself and avoided a hysterectomy simply by eating a whole food plant-based diet. Take care, everyone.